Hello and welcome to The Critic Podcast. This week, Graham Stewart spoke to US editor Oliver Wiseman about Michael Bloomberg's strategy in the race to become the Democratic nominee. And he also met Joseph Connolly to talk about why everybody, particularly men, are dressing so badly. If you enjoy the podcast, why not subscribe to the magazine? Right now, we're offering three issues for just £5. Go to thecritic.co.uk for details. Well, here we are in uh, this week's Critic podcast. I'm uh, talking to Ollie Wiseman, uh, the Critic's US editor. Ollie, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Graham. Uh, here we are. We, we're about a week to go before Super Tuesday, uh, the really big event in the Democrat primaries, uh, where we have uh, 15 different primaries are uh, going to declare, including very big primaries uh, like Texas and California. Uh, this is really going to be a, a, a big test for Mike Bloomberg. Mike Bloomberg is throwing his millions, throwing his, uh, a large part of his uh, fortune in, in, into the struggle now, having arrived late to the contest. Is, is, is it almost make or break this early for for, for, for Mike, as he describes himself, or, or is uh, Bloomberg's effect uh, a long, slow burn? Well, he's, um, as you say, he's sort of pinned all his, his hopes on Super Tuesday. Um, he, he, in a very unorthodox move, hasn't even bothered contesting any of the early states. Um, and that's, that's because what he's trying to do is essentially make the most of his competitive advantage, um, which is money. So the reason most candidates kind of pour so much energy into the early, uh, or one of the reasons they pour so much energy into the early states uh, like Iowa and New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina, is because they're relatively small. Um, um, and so you can kind of, you can, you can flood the airwaves there. You can really make, make, make a real splash um, on a fairly small level that gets a lot of national attention. Uh, and if you do well there, then you can sort of, you can, turn that result into fundraising that becomes a bigger and bigger thing and then you have the resources to start fighting in places like california and texas where obviously the cost of our of a 30 second advert on television is 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 far far higher so for bloomberg who is so so rich and so willing to spend his money on his candidacy um that constraint is not a consideration and so while other candidates have been off uh, in snowy Iowa and Iowa and so on, Bloomberg's really been attacking these massive states, these big Super Tuesday states, um, and essentially trying to just pick up support where other candidates aren't, um, spending too much time and energy, um, and kind of sort of somewhat somewhat subvert the uh, conventional approach to to uh, to the Democratic primary. So in that sense, he, he it really is sort of make or break for him. He has to do well on on, on Super Tuesday, otherwise otherwise he's toast. Yeah, so I mean, I, I think we can agree if, if he if he really flops on Super Tuesday, it's hard to see him recovering. Let let's. Let yeah, that said though, I just want to just sorry to interrupt, just to add one footnote to that, which is that again, because of the limitless money, you know, all the signs are that Bloomberg will. It'll be tough to make him drop out. So even if he does badly, he could he, he's sort of I imagine likely to to hang around and pick up delegates, and you know, in a tight primary contest, that could that could actually prove important on. Uh, when it comes to the convention? Uh, let, let's assume uh, Bloomberg does reasonably well on Super Tuesday. Uh, at whose expense is that most likely to be? Well, he is trying to be the stop Bernie candidate, as are 
quite a lot of as are pretty much all the other candidates so um i think bloomberg's uh, the theory of the case for bloomberg's candidacy is that none of the other quote-unquote moderates so joe biden for example or pete Buttigieg or amy klobuchar um none of them have done enough to demonstrate that they have what it takes to a win the primary against against bernie and b take that onto the national race um and so if bloomberg does well it'll be it'll be in that it'll be in that way now that said um you know i think we the sort of pundit class can get a bit carried away with the ideological positionings of these these candidates and um you know one of the interesting things i've found uh, on the road in my reporting is you know this the, the kind of complicated um paths that voters take so i'll meet i'll meet a uh, voter who was pro bernie sanders but his second preference is biden and he d- really doesn't like elizabeth warren or someone who was very keen on andrew yang sort of somewhat um difficult to pin down character in terms of his ideology but also likes but you know voted trump at the last election and would think about voting bernie in 2020 so you know i think we can get too carried away with the kind of ideological positioning of the candidates it seems to me that Bloomberg's ideological pitch is not really ideological at all. It's deeply personal. He is pitching himself as the man who is going to take on Donald Trump and exemplify the high values that you know, the one area where Democrats are united on is their detestation of Trump and the belief that he has devalued uh, the, the president. Is, is being anti-Trump enough or does it actually play into Trump's hands, ultimately, that if you make an election all about Trump, then uh, in some ways you're paying him a backhanded compliment. Well, I think that Bloomberg's kind of case for why he can beat Trump is actually quite interesting. It's not, you know, there are lots of there are lots of candidates who have tried the, we, we need to go back to business as usual. Trump has, has undermined so many things we hold dear kind of approach. Um, and while Bloomberg certainly agrees with all of that, I mean, the substance of all of that, the interesting thing about his candidacy is his pitch is kind of different. It's kind of, it's this very Manhattan thing of saying, I know Donald, I used to be friends with him. Um, I'm a beast of, I'm a beast of Manhattan. He's another big beast of Manhattan. And kind of, if you want to beat him, you need someone who can kind of hack the code in, in the way that I can, because I know. It's a bit like saying it, it takes a thief to catch a thief. Is, is, is that- exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's got a he's got a very un he's got a very non catchy line on which in a stump speech, which he describes himself as the un-Trump. But I think there is something in that, and he and and there's a sort of paternalistic thing too. He says, um, "I don't let I'm not going to something along the lines of um, Donald Trump won't bully me, and I'm not going to let him bully you," which is sort of this this sort of big spending paternalistic billionaire who's sort of, sort of you know. A sort of Tony Stark Iron Man to use a comic book reference, you know, to sort of come along and and, and save the people from from this villain. So it's a pitch based on personal integrity, uh, but ultimately, is that going to be enough for voters, or do voters not want policies which will make their lives uh, more comfortable, more more secure, more meaningful? Well, I think that's that's the big question the Democrats have been trying to answer in this primary and. You know, there's a sort. Of, I would say there's a sort of slight. Um, the, for example, the case Bernie Sanders makes, which is now is the time for a revolution in which we do all sorts of extremely progressive things. We overhaul healthcare. We um, do a number of things on other fronts that kind of completely fundamentally change 
the relationship between the state and the citizen in, in the United States. Now, A, you can argue that's a bit of a distraction from the priority that should be beating Trump, and B, um, you know, the the economy's growing, wages are rising, actually, especially for those at the bottom end of the of the income scale. So I think the Democrats will have a problem if they if they focus if they go too all in on this um, kind of dystopian picture of uh, in unequal and grossly unfair America, um, and they and they forget you know that the drastic change that that follows from that account will turn off a lot of voters um, on the day. We're in a world of identity politics as now, now as as well as economics. Uh, is a uh, New York billionaire like Mike Bloomberg capable of appealing to the African American or to the Hispanic communities? Well, again, that's a crucial question, um, and it's one which, if you look at the polling at the moment, um, Bloomberg, partly because of the states where he's spending his money, um, and I mean it's a deliberate strategy of his campaign to pursue. Uh, the black vote, the, uh, the Hispanic vote, um, uh, especially the black vote, because um, Joe Biden had a very, very um, large amount of support in that in that community, and that's um, seen as very soft and something worth worth pursuing. The interesting thing about um, that issue is Bloomberg, but has considerable baggage when it comes to um, stop and frisk, which was a very controversial. Um, policing strategy uh, he he uh, he he pushed very hard as as mayor of new york uh he since apologized for that he said you know all the evidence suggests that um it disproportionately targeted black and brown um new yorkers and was very very heavy-handed and in many ways uncon- i think even unconstitutional um that said you know it doesn't necessarily you know the black vote is not this monolithic thing that the democratic establishment kind of sometimes takes it for granted and thinks it is. And so it's difficult to say how much baggage like that will actually impact uh, his vote on the ground. And is there a feeling, just turning to some of the other candidates for a moment, that uh, Elizabeth Warren's campaign has faltered now, that radical vote is is, is going to, to Bernie Sanders and he now has got that? Uh, or is there also a sense that Joe Biden just looks too tired for this fight? Um, well, to take Warren first, she um, has definitely been the big victim of the unlikely kind of Bernie surge that's been going on for, for months now. Um, that said, she's kind of pivoted away from being the progressive alternative to Bernie into being this kind of unity candidate uh, who can unite both wings of the party uh, and it should be said she had a very strong performance in the most recent debate where she really, really went after um, went after Bloomberg, in particular on uh, things he said about women in the past and some non-disclosure agreements his organization has with former employees. Um, so she has got a path, but it's a very, very narrow one. Um, as for Biden, he's uh, really underperformed expectations in the early states so far. Um, that said, South Carolina is has always been his great hope um and kind of remains his great his his now remains his kind of only hope um as i said he has large amount of support among african americans which is makes up a huge proportion of the uh, democratic electorate in that state and so even though it definitely looks and feels like he's 
his campaign is completely on life support at the moment. You know, I think people can kind of get carried away with that narrative and that there is a non, you know, non insignificant uh, chance that he could pull off a sort of unlikely victory in that state. And that would somewhat flip the script for him. And that would also be very bad news for, um, for Bloomberg. One, uh, aspect that people might have anticipated would be that uh, if it achieved nothing else, the attempted impeachment hearings would at least focus on Biden as the person uh, Donald Trump wanted to undermine and stop, and that would boost Biden's position. That doesn't seem to have happened. Yeah, I think that it's interesting. Impeachment, um, you know, I was doing a lot of campaign reporting uh, in Iowa, just as impeachment was reaching kind of its crescendo. And I was really amazed by how few voters mentioned impeachment to me at all. Um, and if I ever like, prompted them with a, with a question about it, it just didn't seem to be something that was on their radar. So, you know, I don't think, I mean, my hunch is that basically impeachment hasn't really affected the race all that much, neither to, to Biden's disadvantage or advantage, to be honest. I mean, I think some people would say Biden could have sort of made more of a virtue of it and sort of positioned himself as this person that um, Trump is coming after because Trump's worried about him and he's, you know, he, he, he's everything that Trump hates and that's why he's the man to beat him or, or whatever, you know, but he, he he's, I think it's sort of just received, it's sort of very quickly faded into the background. And uh, if you were Donald Trump, who would you most want to face and who would you least want to face? Um, I think I would most want to face probably well of the sort of big names i think i think biden does look like he's he hasn't really got the fight in him to be honest with you and i think maybe the impeachment stuff trump would feel as though he could have some have some fun with um i think the others all present quite interesting challenges even though bernie in many ways is the most obviously um risky candidate for the democrats you know he's a he's a you, you can sort of, the Republican attack ads write themselves in terms of this far left um, alternative and taking away people's healthcare um, insurance and so on. But that said, I think Bernie's quite an interesting figure who, um, and there there is a sort of, in, in important Rust Belt states, is an interesting kind of Trump-Bernie axis of voters who, uh, you know, who are sensitive to issues like trade and, you know, Bernie isn't as kind of, woke and sort of coastal in his attitude as say elizabeth warren um and so in that sense i think he's not as much of a turnoff on the kind of culture war stuff um i think you know i i, I the sort of spectator in me quite ho quite quite likes the idea of a of a bloomberg um trump showdown just because one of the interesting things about bloomberg is he clearly does just really wind up um trump and he, Trump's constantly taking the bait on Twitter and this sort of somewhat reality TV show kind of um, political uh, climate that we live in. Um, but, you know, I, I think there's this funny New York thing of like he's just Bloomberg is just so much richer than him. And that's ultimately what, you know, Trump measures. And I think that really winds him up. And I sort of quite enjoy the Trump, Trump's that. references to him as this little Mikey. Uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, well, in, in about a week's time, uh, we will perhaps have a, a, a slightly better idea as to who is uh, going to be 
facing Donald Trump uh, once we have the results in from Super Tuesday. Oli, we're going to have to leave it there for now, but thank you very much for joining us uh, for this segment of the Critic Podcast. And Graham also spoke to Joseph Connolly, the writer and defender of sartorial standards. And with the writer and defender of sartorial standards, Joseph Connolly. Uh, Joseph, welcome to The Critic Podcast. Thank you. You've written in this month's edition of The Critic about the declining standards of male attire. You draw a distinction between men and women. Um, During the daytime, men and women might both dress casually these days, but often women dress uh, with more care and attention in the evening, but men are still making no difference. Why do you think that is? It's an extraordinary phenomenon, really, because, I mean, in in the not-that-old days, um, wearing a suit and a shirt and a tie was normal for men. That was completely standard. And then, of course, in the evening, you'd have black tie and very rarely white tie. But now, suddenly, I don't know, particularly with the younger men... The wearing of a suit, they almost view it as some sort of a prison that they must somehow escape from. And as for a tie, oh my God, you know, that's the worst thing. And women, of course, have always enjoyed clothes much more, naturally. And um, I find it odd that mostly in the daytime, unless their office job dictates otherwise, they will pretty much dress like blokes in that people generally they're wearing sweatshirts and t-shirts and jeans and tracksuit bottoms and trainers and all the rest of it and then possibly in the evening when they're going clubbing or to a restaurant or something they might possibly rather overdo it in that they're dressed up in a fairly bizarre fashion that in the old days might be called they might have been uh, confused with a lady of the night possibly but the contrast in restaurants and at parties and so on with the men who are still wearing a sweatshirt and an open neck shirt or a t-shirt with some idiot slogan written across it you know and I do find it strange that women are seemingly quite happy to put up with this you would think that they would like in the old days put the foot down the stilettoed foot but apparently not they seem all right with it when when did the rot set in God almighty, when do rots set in? Um, I think relatively recently, because, I mean, right up to the 80s and 90s, most male fashion was about uh, suits. They had the, you know, the hugely wide lapels, flared trousers, waistcoats, all that. Hair was longer, sideburns. And it was all a fairly dandified look. Um... It's, 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 the odd thing is that since maybe the 90s, men are dressing exactly the same as they were at the beginning of the 90s. It's been about 30 years now of short, maybe shaved-up hair. The thought of young men in the past actually shaving their head was unbelievable. Um, and it's still this, this sort of very sloppy look with every, everything rather too big, too slouchy, Um, which is okay. I mean, fashions come and go. But I find it really curious that um, if you saw photographs of young men in 1990, they would look not at all dissimilar to young men now. And those young men haven't changed either. They're still all dressing like that. 
it, so the, the fashion clock has stopped and it stopped because it, it's almost an anti-fashion. It's not a style. It, it's an absence of style. Yes. I mean, you could be generous and put it across as a statement, you know, some sort of protest. But of course, men will always do what they can get away with. And basically, it's idleness that, that they can't believe their luck, that they can actually um, pull this off. Mm -hmm. You know, they're allowed to. But it's a shame, really, because in the 50s and the 60s, fashions f for men famously were very flamboyant, you know, particularly in the 60s where men were wearing velvets and paisleys and silks and all the rest of it. And one rather thought, and of course, older men in those days frowned upon it terribly and they were called girlies and Shirley Temple and all this sort of thing. But one did think that it was a breakthrough of a sort and that fa fashions should change. It's the very nature of fashion and th other things would develop. But for this, um, everyone wearing grey and dark blue and it's all workwear, basically, um, I, it's terribly disappointing and it's very, very drab. Is, is it, <coughs> it could be to do with, with protest or, or sheer laziness, is it, I wonder, connected to music in that you look at the, 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 the dressing up that, that men had from the, the, the teddy boys uh, through to flower power and you know, new romantics in the 1980s and even the rather dressing down or, or the, the punks and the, and the gothic punks and, and so on um, through, through the 80s to the beginning of the 90s. Um, there were clear styles associated with appreciations of particular music styles. That has gone now. Music e does not connotate a particular style, by and, by and large, and the, the idea of musical tribes has gone. Is it the absence of musical tribes which explains this sort of year zero of fashion for men? I think that could certainly have something to do with it because, again, men have always looked for a lead, but then women too, because that's what fashion is. They want to be wearing what everybody else is wearing. Individualism has rather vanished as well. I think another factor might be um, that nobody wants to be associated with being a toff in any way. This is now a really bad word, you know. And so whenever the press wants to get at the Tories or William Rees, not William Rees-Mogg, Jacob Rees-Mogg, they'll keep printing that picture of him in a top hand, you know, because it's laughable, it's a toff, you know. Similarly, um, they don't want to be associated with the few jobs left where you have to wear a suit and a tie, estate agents, God knows, you know, very, very few indeed now. Um, so there is that sort of, as it were, rebellion, but it's rebellion with a very small R. Um, uh, I do think it comes down more to laissez-faire and idleness than any sort of ideology at all. Although there's, there's also the influence of the Seattle IT scene, the dressing down of the early noughties during the, the, the period of just leading up to the dot-com bubble, the, the Mark Zuckerberg looks. So I, it's idleness, but it's also idleness following, following particular icons of the yeah. modern economy. That's right. It's anti-style style. style. Mm -hmm. um, and also the other, the other huge change, which is probably a good thing, uh, is, is that dress, particularly for men, used to be an indicator of wealth and status. Uh, that's what most of it was for. You know, people would spot the handmade shoe and all this sort of thing. This has vanished now completely. And, uh, you know, the richest men on earth, like Steve 
Jobs and uh, the late Steve Jobs and uh, Bill Gates and Zuckerberg, as you've said, you know, they do. They dress in the most basic, cheap way, uh, which, which is nice in a way. They're, you know, they're not being flash and they're not saying, look at me. Um, and, and it is true now that uh, restaurants and certain hotels, they used to immediately adjust their attitude uh, depending on how someone was dressed. They wouldn't dare do that now <laughs> because everyone is either a hobo or a billionaire and who's to say? Uh, first the hat went and then the tie went. What, what, I, I'm beginning to wonder what oh. is there left to go? I mean, is, is the next look everyone wandering around in speedos? Well, the formal shirt is more or less gone because people now wear it without a tie, but the collared shirt without a tie is a nonsense because you have these two useless things flapping about and the only reason they're there is to take the tie knot. So we certainly ought to have, wear collarless shirts if we're not going to wear a tie. But even a shirt and a jacket are now seem to be quite formal as opposed to a t-shirt and a zip-up bomber thing, a Harrington jacket or something like that. Um, leather shoes are now a rarity, you know, everyone has these multicoloured bouncy things, you know, and um, there are a great deal of men who I think are maybe old enough to know better, who do dress like 11-year-old children, you know, and I know it's comfortable, everyone says it's comfortable, but then people used to say, you know, when you only dress for comfort, you've given up, maybe they've given up. So nothing is forever. This will surely end at some stage. Uh, or will it? I wonder. There might be a backlash. But I think, you know, when, when, um, when things are relaxed so much, it's rather like the way a table is set now. You know, there was something in the press the other day about the importance of a tablecloth. Uh, very few people do that anymore. Lots of restaurants now, your cutlery is in a tin mug and you take your own, you know. I think once standards get reduced to that extent, a return would be very difficult indeed. But I would hope for one. Well, there's a line in Isabel Colgate's The Shooting Party, I think relating to uh, studs, which is, you know, if we lose respect for these things, we lose respect for ourselves. Is it actually ourselves we've lost respect for? I think respect too, it's a question of where you are, you see. I mean, um, the reason, probably the only time people still dress up in full fig is a wedding, you know. And even then, men will get it wrong. They will have ill-fitting hired clothes. They, won't, they will refuse to do up the top button of their shirt for some reason while still wearing a tie. But, but everyone is clearly making the effort. And this is respect for the bride and groom and the event and all the rest of it. And uh, it used to be that if you went to someone's home, a dinner party, if you went to a grand hotel, there was the element of living up to your surroundings because it is rather rude to spoil the scene by your, um, you know, idleness. It, it, I mean, ma manners used to be about making everyone comfortable. And uh, now it's, look, if they don't like it, I don't care, hmm. which is sad. So this is the equivalent of the, the fashion boot stamping on us forever now. Well, it could be. Well, that, that's a sobering thought for those of us trying to keep up standards. Uh, Joseph Connolly, who, the exemplar of sartorial standards, thank you very much for giving us your thoughts. Thank you. Great pleasure.
We hope you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, but why not get The Critic in print? Right now we're offering three issues for just £5. Go to thecritic.co.uk for details.